Gracious God, we thank you for the illuminating work of your Spirit in Holy Scripture. Lord, that your Word breaks into our hard hearts and our hard lives and it convicts us of sin. God, do your work by the Spirit right now, we pray, that we would be humble before you so that we can receive grace upon grace in the gospel. Father, I pray especially for our middle schoolers and those high schoolers and sponsors uh, who are with um, all of our kiddos and many, many other kiddos out in West Virginia at the Young Life Camp. Would you bring their time together um, to a sweet conclusion, Lord, that you would bring them back to us safely, we pray. And Lord, even now we ask that you, by your Spirit, would convict them of sin, um, help them to see the mercy and grace that is found in Christ alone, the redemption that is found in Christ alone, and bring them back to us quickly, we pray. And now, Father, be with me as the preacher of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I fell asleep last night thinking about David Attenborough. I'm not exactly sure why the algorithms have been putting David Attenborough ads in my feed for months now, but they've caught my attention. They've caught my attention. Now, if you don't know, Sir David Attenborough is a famous British naturalist, and he's still alive. I think he's like 97 years old. Um, he's the voice of several docu-series about animals and planet Earth, many of which are almost 20 years old, which makes me feel really, really old. Now, I fell asleep last night with his voice in my head. Not like the voice of God, although I think I kind of imagine God's voice to sound like David Attenborough a little bit. Now, I imagined a scene where a large animal is chasing another animal. With David's voice calmly and deliberately describing the high-definition, brutal killing. That's what I was imagining as I went to sleep last night. I would agree with Sir David that human beings are animals. You and I are animals. We share many common characteristics with animals. But if you asked him why it is okay to film in high definition and slow motion and then to dispassionately describe a lion violently killing a zebra and why it is not okay, why it would definitely not be okay to do the same with a powerful human being killing another less powerful human, he, David Attenborough, I'm pretty sure he would rightly say that human society deems murder to be unacceptable. That's what he would say. I would hope that he would say that, but what if my more powerful human society says that it is okay to brutally murder my less powerful neighbor? This is something that societies take upon themselves all the time. It's happening right now in our world. It's definitely happened a lot throughout human history. While we share many things in common with animals, you don't have to be a Christian to think that we are not beasts 
We're not merely animals. We're not just animals alone. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. We, can, we, can call, we call a man a brute or else brutal. We, we call someone an animal when they're acting merely like a beast, which is to say a man should be violent against a tyrant or else someone who is attacking defenseless people or widows or children or something like this. But a man who is violent towards a small child is a beast. He's a horrible man. When someone more powerful dominates someone below them, this is inhuman. When Russia attacks Ukraine unprovoked, when we are mindlessly entertained by fictional brutality, when missionaries are murdered for speaking, when women and children are abused by cowardly men and we do nothing about it, when men behave like animals, we judge them to be inhuman. That's what we say. They're inhuman. They're brutes. Something more is required of human beings. And Sir David Attenborough would agree with us. We all know deep down, and we all want to be more than merely animals. We know that we are. So here's the question I want to answer this morning. And I'm going to paraphrase this question, piecing together some uh, philosophy from one of my favorite philosophers, Peter Kraft. Here's the question that I want to reflect on. If goodness, if goodness and justice and joy and peace is what the majority of sane people, okay, so the majority of people in their right mind always want and have always wanted in the past, in the present, and in the future, if they want goodness, justice, joy, and peace, then why can we never attain any of that? That's the question that we're reflecting on this morning. Why, if we want it so bad, do we not have it? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created man to desire this state, this good state. In his image, he created them, male and female, he created them, and it was good. Genesis chapter 2, which we heard just a, just a moment ago from Aunt Kyle, men and women were made distinct from the animals. The creation account continues, and they were tasked to name the animals, to lovingly rule over them and to care for them, and they ruled over the garden in innocence. They were innocent. Humanity ruled with truth and joy and bliss together, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, the text says. Now, according to Christian doctrine, at the beginning, hear this, grace, grace is natural. Grace is the most natural thing in all of the universe. For Christianity... Original sin, which we're about to turn our attention to, is our disease, not our design. It's our disease. It's not our design. In the beginning, everything was a gift given to humanity by God. Plants and animals were given as a gift. This is grace. Women were given to men and men were given to women, given to one another as a good gift. Wouldn't that be nice? This is grace. We were made to receive grace, to give grace, and to steward God's gracious gift. This is the beginning. 
Grace is natural. Don't you long to live in a world full of goodness and justice and joy and peace? This is natural. This is a natural longing that God made us for. And with all humanity, not just Christians, we say, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want. If happiness is what we were made for, and if happiness is what most people want and have always wanted throughout history again, then why is the story of humanity so unhappy? Genesis chapter 3. The story continues. Rather than receive good from the boundless good gifts, the grace given to them in all of creation from their father, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed the one rule they were given. One rule at the beginning. Don't eat from one tree. One rule, one tree. It's a very childlike kind of rule because they were innocent as children. And when they did this, when they violated this rule, when they rejected the word of the Lord, a curse spread through all humanity. And this is the curse. Let me describe it to you in sophisticated theological language. I want what I want when I want it. This is the curse. I want what I want when I want it. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 11. But still, hear this. We all, hear the animal language. We all growl like bears. We all moan like doves. We moan and moan like doves, Isaiah says. We hope for justice. We we desire this good state, this righteousness. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation but it is far from us. We can never reach it. We want justice. We want salvation. Why, if we want goodness, is the story of humanity filled with badness? Well, the answer to all of our growling like bears or else our moaning like doves is the radically unpopular doctrine of original sin, of original sin. If humanity was created good and created with the capacity for happiness and joy and peace, then why is the universal experience of humanity just the opposite? It's because we have an inescapable inheritance in Adam, all of us. We have an inescapable inheritance that is ours. We're born with it. We're born into it. Hear this from Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 again. Sin came into the world through one man. This is Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's you and me. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but, the, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, before Moses brought down the law from the mountain of God, from Sinai, before he brought it down to God's people in the wilderness, Hundreds, thousands of years later, there was only one law ever given to one man. Don't eat from that one tree. After Adam and Eve sinned outside the garden, though this one law was not spoken to the whole of humanity, still sin and death reigned. 
Still, even without the law spoken, sin and death reigned over every son of Adam. I want what I want when I want it. Here's the curse. I want what I want when I want it. Thank you very much. Don't tell me what to do. Humanity did not have a law, but still they rejected God's rule over them. Thousands of years later, when the law was given to God's people at Sinai, rather than make God's people righteous, the law, just like this little childish law in the garden, this law exposed sin. More, more, and more sin. Sinning abounded all the more, the Apostle Paul says. It increased There are over 50 words used for sin in the Bible. Sin with a lot of cognates that basically say sin. Here's some of the ideas and some of the translations. You might have heard missing the mark. This is a big idea. Missing the mark or falling short. Wickedness, perversity, injustice, disobedience, guilt, bent. Or else you're bent, you're twisted. You're twisted. Transgression. You go astray. You go astray. You go your own way. Sickness. Beyond a cure. Revolt. Rebellion. Ungodly. Worthless. Falsehood. Trouble. Emptiness. This is sin. With every word and with every law that exposes a different facet of our fallenness, of our sin, our sin is exposed More and more. This is the story of the world, and it's certainly the story of Holy Scripture. If sin consists in the transgression, or else the violation of a specific commandment, the more commandments, the more sin. This is Romans chapter 1 through 9. Our basic orientation to sin is exposed. Is exposed. And here's, here's the reality. It's exposed more the closer that we get to God. Hear this. It's exposed more the closer we are to the law of God. The more frequently we come up into the house and hear His commandments on His holy hill, the more our sin and our awareness of sin is multiplied. No longer just one tree in one garden, now in every area of life, I want what I want, I want what I want when I want it becomes clarified. This is where you and I are sitting in many ways right now at the beginning of this service, at the beginning of the season of Lent. I'm going to turn to my favorite helper, at least my recent favorite helper. Lord, forgive me, Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal reflecting on this bentness or else this this twisting of God's goodness in our own heart, in our own mind. This is Ponce number 978 or part of it. It is no doubt an evil to be full of faults. Is that where you feel right now? You, You can feel your faults exposed before confession maybe this morning? It's no doubt an evil to be full of faults. But it is still greater evil to be full of them and unwilling to recognize them. 
unwilling to recognize them, since this entails the further evil of deliberate self-delusion. I have faults, but I don't want to recognize them. I'm going to delude myself. We do not want others to deceive us. Pascal says, we don't like when other people lie to us, when they deceive us. We do not think it right for them to want us to esteem them more than they deserve. Nobody likes someone getting the job who doesn't deserve the job over you, right? We don't want to esteem them more than they deserve. It is therefore not right either that we should deceive them and want them to esteem us more than we deserve. If we don't like it happening to us, we shouldn't do it to them. He goes on to say, These are the feelings which would spring from a heart full of equity and justice which is to say a heart that we don't have by ourselves. What then should we say of ours, of our own heart, seeing it quite differently disposed? For is it not true that we hate the truth and those who tell it to us, and we like them to be deceived to our advantage and want to be esteemed by them as other than we actually are? We put on a face. We want people to think that we're holy. We want to deceive them. This is how we all show up. This is how we live. And it leads to unhappiness. Later, Pascal would say, unhappy as we are, we have an idea of happiness, but we cannot attain it. We perceive an image of the truth and possess nothing but falsehood. We can see what we were created for, which is goodness and truth and beauty. We can, we can perceive it a little bit, but we get nothing but falsehood. Being equally incapable of absolute ignorance of our desire for peace and the certain knowledge of our wretchedness, so obvious is it that we once enjoyed a degree of perfection from which we have unhappily fallen. Nobody likes the doctrine of sin. Staring at, this is an analogy that I really like, it helps me to sort of reflect on my own experience, thinking about not only my own sin, but the doctrine of sin itself. Staring at the doctrine of original sin is like staring at the sun. It's like staring at the sun. By the light of the sun, we can begin to see and understand everything around us. That's how we are seeing right now. The doctrine of original sin reminds us that we were created for grace. This is not what we were meant to be. This is not what God intended from us for us for the beginning. We were created for good, but we have fallen. We have fallen in Adam, and by our own selfish desires and wills, we're all born into an original sin that we share. This is what the light of original sin exposes. We can make sense of both human history, that people have done amazingly good things, but also horrible things at the same time. This is what the doctrine of original sin holds together. We can make sense of human history and our own hearts, and our own hearts at the same time. But if you stare, here's, here's where the analogy turns. If you stare at the sun for too long, or else you stare at your sin for too long, you'll go blind. You'll go blind. And this is where we begin our Lenten journey. 
staring at the reality of our sin, our self-deception, our constantly deceiving others, and maybe not even intentionally, we just do it reflexively. Our sin entangles us and it blinds us, but we must not stare at it too long. We cannot, we cannot conceive Adam's state of glory, Pascal says, or the nature of his sin, or the way it has been transmitted to us. If we try to understand this fully and completely, we will find that we cannot, Pascal says. These are things which took place in a state of nature quite different from our own and which pass our present understanding. Knowing all this does not help us to escape. Knowing about original sin, Pascal says, doesn't help us to escape. All that is important for us to know is that we are wretched, corrupt, separated from God, but but redeemed, but redeemed by Christ. And that is what is wonderfully proved to us on earth. The doctrine of original sin at the end of the day may or may not be proved to you, but knowing that doesn't redeem us. It's the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ here from Romans chapter 5 again. Therefore, as one man, Adam, trespass, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You can't have one without the other. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Hear the gospel. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased because of the law, where it increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. talked a lot about identity in Christ over the last seven or eight weeks. I want, to, I want to reflect on that just a little bit here. The New Testament opens with the name Jesus. You guys have heard this. You've heard it many times. Jesus means God saves. Matthew 121 He is named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. The Apostle John wrote in his letter that Jesus appeared. He appeared. The epiphany of our Lord Jesus. He appeared in order to take sins away. To take sins away. This is what John the Baptist proclaimed as well at the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus begins his earthly ministry by conquering the devil in the wilderness of temptation, reversing the curse of Adam. He came not to call the righteous, but call sinners. To shed his blood for the remission of sins. Jesus forgave sins. And for this divine claim, this is why he was crucified, because he forgave sins. But even this evil plan was his plan to deal with what? With sin. With sin. Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures. Our problem, 
So hear this, our identity problem is not, is not a metaphysical problem. It's not about being distant from God, like he's far away from us. It's our sin that separates us from God. In other words, the purpose of Jesus' saving ministry was to deal with sin. To deal with sin. This is how the gospel is proclaimed from the beginning. It's not merely to make us smarter or else to get rid of ignorance. And, hear this, this is really important, it's not merely to join humanity to the divine nature. We've used this language a lot in the last seven or eight weeks. God came down to us so that we could be lifted up to Him. This is not first. This is not first. It's not the first thing of the gospel. He came to deal with sin. It's what Jesus came to do, to destroy sin forever. Sin cannot be dealt with by fine-tuning. It cannot be dealt with with good advice. It cannot be dealt with by engineering the perfect society. Original sin is like cancer. It's like spiritual cancer. It lodges in my, my body in my nature, in myself, in all of my desires, all of my proclivities, all my concupiscence, all of it, it is the slippery slope I fall down every time I try to pray. This is the sin at war. Every time I try to pray, my sin, my original sin, is the slippery slope that I slide down every time I pray or else every time I want to live self-sacrificially. It's a disease we catch not only from our environment, we first catch it from our heredity. In Adam, all die. We declared with David this morning our sin in Psalm 51. And David turns in verse 10 of this psalm. He turns to Yahweh his God and he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. This is the language of creation. This is the language of creation. It took infinite power. It took the infinite power of God to create the universe out of nothing. But it takes even greater power to make saints out of sinners. Took infinite power to create the universe out of nothing, but it takes even more power to make saints out of sinners. Why? For nothingness out of which God created the universe, it did not fight against him. It did not resist him, but sinners do. We do. We fight against him. So David prays, create, create in me a clean heart, O God. And he uses this word, create, and is a word only used of God in the, in the Bible. God is the subject every time. He is the only one who can do this kind of creation. C.S. Lewis once wrote in a letter on prayer that the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool of his own unalterable corruption pretty heavy letter. I'm glad I didn't receive that letter from him. But he wrote this in a letter on prayer. And so I have three final points of application. How can we attend to our sins? 
this morning and throughout this Lent. Firstly, a baby step. Every Sunday, every Sunday, and perhaps especially in the season of Lent, we have the opportunity to bring our sins into the light of Christ. Christ has come and he comes to us today to deal with our sin. This is where the gospel enters into our lives first and foremost, to deal with our sin, to heal us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. In just a moment, we will get on our knees to confess our sins. To confess our sins. Here's a baby step. Don't simply bow liturgically. Ask God by the Spirit to help you bow inwardly. Definitely don't bow for others around you or even for me. Get on your knees with a broken and contrite heart and bring your sin to your merciful King because He wants to heal you and forgive you today. It's the first baby step. Secondly, secondly, I invite you to come to me this Lent for the rite of reconciliation. Now that sounds crazy to a lot of you. It sounds crazy to confess your sins to a priest, okay? I get that. I totally get that. But this is the second baby step, okay? First baby step, we're all going to do it together. Even the babies in here. We're going to get on our knees and we're going to confess our sins to God. Second baby step, come to me. Why is this, why is this an easier step, okay, than the third step, all right? I'm not, I'm not going to say the third step yet. I'm going to turn to Pascal one last time. Pascal, thinking about this rite of reconciliation, he says this. The church does not oblige us to reveal our sins indiscriminately to everyone. That's not, it's not required of you. You guys don't have to tell everyone all of your sins all the time. Thanks be to God. Are you guys happy about that? I'm happy about that. It allows us to remain hidden from all other men with one single exception to whom it bids us reveal our innermost heart and show ourselves for what we are. There is only this one man in the world whom it orders us to disillusion. Get rid of the illusion. Get rid of the illusion. And it lays on him, this is the Christian priest, the obligation of inviolable secrecy which means that he might as well not possess the knowledge of us that he has. Can anything milder and more charitable be imagined? You only have to tell one person, and he can't tell anybody. Can anything milder or more charitable be imagined? And yet, such is man's corruption that he finds even this law harsh. And this is one of the main reasons why a large part of Europe has revolted against the church. We need to confess our sins. Martin Luther, he kept three sacraments. He kept three sacraments. The Lord's Supper, baptism, and this one. Penance. Confession of sin. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, the Apostle James says, that you may be healed. Here's the third and final step, the next baby step. We all know that you're broken and bruised by sin. Every one of us knows it. Don't be deceived. We know this. You know how we all know it? 
Because every one of us is in the exact same place. And so the final step, stop deceiving others. Confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. Give forgiveness over and over again. Give forgiveness and receive forgiveness. This is, this is how we are healing in this broken world. So I invite you, come with a baby step and maybe another baby step and maybe some more baby steps. Bring your sin into the light this Lent. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand and let us confess our sins together. Confess our faith together first in the words of the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> 